Are association health plans the future of American health insurance? Our guest wrote a book about it. What does he think? We'll find out on this episode of Shift Shapers. Change either paralyzes or energizes. The choice is yours. You're listening to the Shift Shapers podcast. You're about to learn firsthand from businesses and entrepreneurs who have successfully shaped the shifts in their industries. Get ready to become the change that you want to see. Here's your host and chief transformation strategist, David Saltzman. This episode of Shift Shapers is brought to you by Major League Mindset, dedicated to helping you play bigger. Do you want to become the authority in your market? Would you like to prospect less and sell more? How can you create those long-lasting relationships with clients who don't change advisors every year? We've been there and done that, and we can help you do that too. Click on our Major League Mindset logo on the ShiftShapersOnline.com website for more details about our next Pitching from the Stage program that will help you become the advisor you know you can be. On this episode of Shift Shapers, we're speaking with Kev Coleman. Kev is president and founder of the Association of HealthPlans.com. He's a consumer advocate, a researcher. You maybe have seen his research in the Wall Street Journal, the New York Times, Consumer Reports, USA Today. He also consults with various administrations of both sides of the aisle on all things healthcare. And he's written a very interesting book called Association Health Plans, The Future of American Health Insurance. And we thought we'd chat with Kev a little bit about AHPs and what they are and how they're running and where they're going and what it means to the future. So with that, welcome, Kev. Thank you very much, David. A very good morning to you. Thank you, sir, as well to you. Let's level set. For folks who may not know, although I suspect that most of the folks in our audience know this, but let's level set. What is an AHP and how did they come to be? Certainly. Association health plans are a multiple employer welfare arrangement often referred to as a MIWA, that allows a group of companies to sponsor a single health plan for their employees. They were brought into existence in 1974 under the ERISA law and have been operating in a uh, you know, variety of forms for several decades since then. Most recently, there's been an adoption of a new regulation that has expanded the market for association health plans, and I'm sure we'll dive quite deeply into that subject. But just for that level set, you know, understanding it as just a way that a bunch of companies, particularly small companies, can band together and all of a sudden sponsor a single large health plan is the best way to understand AHPs. So, but I mean, MIWAs, as you said, have been around since 74. Is there a difference factually or operationally between a MIWA and an association health plan? Excellent question. Absolutely, yes. So, every AHP is a MIWA, but not every MIWA is an AHP. Association health plans have uh, very specific rules regarding the bona fide nature of the association that's sponsoring, etc., MIWAs, however, uh, have a um, narrower set of requirements, and you can sponsor a MIWA that is not in uh, an AHP. Is it easier to do AHPs across the board? I know there are some states, I mean, I was running a TPA in Florida for a number of years, and we tried to put together a MIWA for a medical association. And while technically MIWAs are not illegal in Florida, the, the hurdles and the bar to put one up was just impossible to surmount. 
Yes. So what you'll see is across the United States, there is a variety of state-specific laws that address MIWAs, whether those MIWAs are fully insured, like a you know, traditional health plan, or if the MIWAs are self-insured or partially self-insured. You can find states that have very MIWA-friendly laws for both fully insured and self-insured plans. In some other states, you might find that they're friendly towards the fully insured, but not the self-insured. And then there's some states that are just hostile to MIWAs in general. I would say that across the United States, there's right now probably about 35 states that are particularly friendly to MIWAs in some form or another, whether it's both uh, fully insured and self-insured or just one one of those. There was a huge amount of buzz about AHPs a few years back, and then it seems to have died down. What caused, if I'm right, what caused the buzz and why is it kind of leveled off? Well, are, are you talking about in 2018 or previously? And, and the reason I ask that is association health plans have been part of the U.S. market for several decades uh, now, and they've had to evolve as ERISA has evolved you know, in, in the United States. There was also you know, some real interest during the uh, George W. Bush administration association health plans. And then there was renewed interest in 2018 when the Department of Labor issued updated regulations. Yeah, I think it was those updated regulations that kind of had people buzzing for a while. What changed? Great question. So in June 2018, the Department of Labor released new regulation on association health plans, and it really did change the market. So first of all, they made regionally defined associations possible. A regionally defined association is one where the group of employers sponsoring the health plan just have a common geography among them. They don't have to belong to the same industry or the same profession. And that obviously expanded the uh, possibilities for association health plans in terms of who could sponsor them. You know, imagine, you know, your local chamber of commerce being able to do that. These regions can be as large as a state. In some cases, they could be a metro area, which isn't a full state, but it could cross multiple states. So that was one of the innovations. Another one was they were opening up association health plans to sole proprietors and gig economy workers. So an association health plan doesn't have to extend participation uh, to sole props. However, they could if they so choose. And that's enormously important because you know, sole proprietors are in the most expensive health insurance market. You know, they're buying in the individual and family market, uh, the one that we currently refer to as Obamacare. And that's, you know, very tough when you're already responsible for all your costs to begin with. And then your health coverage is, you know, about the most expensive within the marketplace. Continuing with the changes in the 2018 regulation, they also made it that employer groups could come together and create an association for the primary purpose of providing health benefits. So before an association had to be in existence for some other reason, and if they so chose to you know, sponsor an association health plan, they could. In this case, you could just have you know, a bunch of small businesses say, hey, we're getting killed with our health insurance pr- prices. Why don't we band together and get some lower-cost, large-company health insurance through an association health plan? 
With this said, I, I should mention that you know even when an association is created for the primary purpose of creating or of offering health benefits to its members, they still have to have a secondary purpose that even if that health benefits you know weren't available within the association, the association would still be a viable entity. You know, for instance, maybe they're offering, you know, training or certification in a field. Maybe they're, you know, uh, engaged in, you know, advocacy for their uh, profession or lobbying, etc. So going back to the regulation, one of the reasons why this is a sea change is that you're expanding out the ability of small companies to be able to get together and create these you know, large group plans. And it also gave them, them the ability that the member groups would not be individually underwritten. You basically similarly situated employers will be rated together. So let's say that you had a regional association health plan. You would rate, you know, all your plumbing firms in the same way. Uh, you would rate all your, you know, petroleum, you know, firms in the same way, et cetera. There also isn't a look through where, you know, the government comes through and says, okay, even though you have 3,000 people in your health plan, your particular company that is part of it only has 13 people, therefore I'm throwing you into the small group market. The prevention, you know, or the ability of these small businesses to preserve large groups uh, status within the context of an association health plan is really enormously important. I'll give you some data to help you appreciate it. You know, we know that small businesses have been struggling with health insurance costs for a long time. According to the Kaiser Family Foundation's 2018 Employer Health Benefits Survey, small firms paid an average of $6,896 annually, annually for single coverage and $18,739 annually for family coverage for, for workers. Uh, you know, those are big numbers, you know, particularly for small firms. You know, they don't have the profit margins of an Apple computer, an Amazon, etc. And then also on top of these premium expenses, you know, the average deductible at small firms was uh, over two thousand dollars. So uh, this is part of the reasons why the 2018 regulatory change was really exciting for small businesses. And it came at a time when we found that competition in the small group market uh, was declining. A market analysis by the Commonwealth Fund demonstrated a 19% decline in small group insurers with at least 1,000 members between 2012 and 2016. And we all know when you, you know, have a decline in competitors, uh, prices typically go up. Sure. So is that, is that helpful, uh, David, in terms of giving at least kind of a, a broad-based introduction of the regulation and why it was very significant for small businesses? No, I, th I think that's great. I mean, in, so we, we've touched on a little bit, no individual underwriting. Mm -hmm. Obviously, there's an economy of scale or at least allegedly an economy of scale for purchasing when you get a larger group together yep. and that may yield lower premiums or more favorable to the employee in terms of health plan designs. Were there other problems that AHPs were, were trying to solve as well, or was that pretty much the bundle? That was the primary problem. You know, health costs for both small businesses as well as sole proprietors. And to give you an idea of the unfortunate situation small businesses are in, imagine that, you know, you have the same set of health benefits purchased by a small business versus a large company. 
And we're going to, to, you know, define a large company the way that most states do, which is, you know, 51 or more eligible, you know, employees. The small business, on average, would pay 8 to 18% more for the exact same benefits than a large company. And, and that's really unfair. You know, that, that gives large companies, uh, you know, an innate, you know, overhead advantage over small businesses. And, you know, you have to you know, understand that, you know, health benefits you know, is a huge issue for workers. You know, with, with small businesses, many of them can't afford it. About half of small businesses do not offer health insurance uh, to workers. And when you take a look at, well, what's the practical significance of this? Companies employing less than 50 workers comprise about 51 million Americans. And we find that, you know, 92% of employees uh, indicate that benefits are very important to their overall job satisfaction. And the most important of these benefits is health care. I believe uh, you know, that 2018 study by the Employee Benefit Research Institute found that 73% workers cited health insurance as a top three consideration when contemplating a job change. And a complementary piece of research by a firm called Fractal found that 80% of employees want benefits or perks even more than they want a pay raise. So if you're a small business and you want to retain as well as attract good talent, you know, finding ways to be able to offer compelling health insurance is really a critical issue uh, strategically for them. And now a word from our sponsor. Let's get serious. Are you tired of watching those other advisors in your market snapping up the primo relationships and wondering what their secret is? Well, time to get your bubble burst. There is no secret. What do they know that you need to know? They know how to create engagement, relationships, and authority, and now you can too. Our Pitching from the Stage course has already helped advisors learn how to hone their messaging in a way that resonates with the clients they want, and we can help you do that too. Keith took the class and said, Thanks and kudos to David and Andy. They've been enormously helpful in steering me in the right direction and providing tips, guidelines, and ideas for public speaking. Carol said, I wanted to get myself more at ease with doing presentations, and this course was a great way to build my confidence. This is definitely a course you want to take. Well, now you can join Keith, Carol, and all the others who've gained the confidence, competence, and course of action they need to become the authority who can pitch to many prospects all at the same time. Our next four-week class begins on September 18th, and there's still room for a few more attendees. For more information, or to sign up, just click the Major League Mindset logo at shiftshapersonline.com. And now, back to our conversation. Now, one of the things that you talk about in the book, and, and maybe it'll get us into our next subject, which is what the next 24 to 36 months hold, is you talk a little bit about short-term plans. And I know there's been some recent activity in that area, which kind of validates what you said in the book, which was that you thought that they were going to be able to be kind of resuscitated. What's going on with that? Where do you see that going? Uh, certainly. Yeah, it's it's always nice to make a prediction that turns out to be accurate. Uh, <laughs> one of the things I did in the book, and you mentioned it earlier, it's called Association Health Plans and the Future of American Health Insurance, is that the second to last chapter of the monograph tries to address 
what are some of the things that I expect to see within the American health insurance market in the next, you know, 18 months? And one of them was the increase within the short-term uh, limited duration uh, health insurance market. During the Obama administration, uh, late in the Obama administration, they put through a regulation that reduced the term of short-term plans to a maximum of uh you know, less than three months. And this was, you know, very hard, particularly because the Affordable Care Act is structured in such a way that if you miss the open enrollment period and don't have some, you know, special enrollment period justification like a marriage or birth of a child, you are shut out of the Affordable Care Act market for a year. You know, it's not until the next enrollment period uh, happens that you can sign up, and then you have to wait until January 1st for that coverage to become uh, active. So, uh, there, there was a lot of concern about that change. Uh, it seemed very arbitrary and capricious that the Obama administration was limiting short-term plans to three months. From their perspective, they thought, oh, this would drive people into the Obamacare market. That did not prove to be true. You know, when you took a look at, you know, Obamacare's enrollment number, enrollment numbers, you know, you continued to see you know, a decline and the um, uh, implementation of that three-month rule didn't uh, help it. So, uh, the next administration, uh, the Trump administration, reversed that particular regulation. It was challenged in court and it uh, survived court challenge. So, it's now the, uh, the law of the land. One of the things that people should understand, though, about short-term health insurance is that it's a type of, a unique type of health insurance that was created to address a specific need, a very specific need, which is, you know, temporary health coverage. You know, back in the old days of health insurance, you would have, you know, everyone going through all the expense and underwriting, assuming that people would stay in their health insurance and renew it, et cetera. And uh, what insurers were starting to find is that there was a you know small segment of the market that would go through buy health insurance and only keep it for you know six months, nine months, etc. You know maybe someone was in between jobs or they were you know doing some other you know activity, maybe school, etc where they didn't have their traditional uh, health coverage. And uh, that was the environment that short-term health insurance from which it was birthed. And one of the things that they did in it is it typically does not cover uh, pre-existing uh, conditions. And I say typically, you know, about 99% of these plans do not. There's you know a few plans that I've uh, seen where they might have some limited coverage up to a, a specific dollar amount. But normally when you talk about short-term uh, health insurance, it's not going to cover pre-existing conditions. And it, it doesn't cover it for a reason. You're only, you know, it's expected that you're only having it for a short period of time. And if you were just, you know, signing up for it when you were sick and then using the services and then discontinuing it from an actuarial standpoint, obviously, uh, you know, the, these plans would go down in flame and you, you couldn't even offer them. So, uh, they're a tool meant to solve a very specific problem. Now, I, I will say that, you know, you have uh, seen, you know, a, a small segment of the American uh, public who they can't afford Obamacare. They're in the individual market and they don't qualify for subsidies. And some of these people will use uh, short-term health insurance, you know, multiple times as a primary coverage. I think with uh, association health plans coming out, and particularly the option of extending it to uh, working owners and sole proprietors, we'll see some uh, some lessening of that behavior. But uh, you know, by and large, from what you know, 
the data would indicate that's a very small segment of the market. Mm. Well, we've got a couple of minutes left. Prognosticate for us. What do you see coming in the next 24 months, let's say? And, and where do you, and do you have an idea of what, where we might end up beyond that? And is all of this subject to the whims of politics? <laughs> I'll answer the last question first. Everything will be affected by politics. Uh, obviously, there is also a new presidential election cycle that's uh, coming up that will bring increased uh, focus to healthcare. With respect to uh, association health plans under the new regulation, what we would call pathway two association health plans, they're currently under legal challenge. What happened after the new regulation was issued, there were 11 Democratic attorneys uh, generals uh, from uh, different states, along with the attorney general, Democratic attorney general from Washington, D.C., that filed a lawsuit to try and prevent the uh, pathway to association health plans from operating. I think they found a sympathetic judge in the person of Judge Bates, uh, I did read his decision against the uh, Pathway 2 rules and did not find it compelling on numerous points. And that's you know public knowledge. I've not participated within a amicus curiae on behalf of the government fighting and appealing that judgment. But what that's done is while the appeal for this Judge Bates decision is being processed, there aren't new pathway to association health plans, you know, being created. There is a um, non-enforcement action going on for those people who are enrolled currently within the association health plans, but everyone's waiting for the appeal court to, uh, you know, rule on the uh, government's appeal to uh, you know, reinstate the legitimation of the pathway to association health plans. And uh, thankfully, within the same district at the lower court level, the um, short-term limited duration uh, regulation was attacked on many of the same premises, and the attack was rejected. So we're, you know, hoping for, um, you know, a similar result at the appeal level for association health plans. In the meantime, I think what you're going to see are employer groups who really like the idea of association health plans investigate pathway one, which is the old association health plans. Um, these are more limited. You know, I, I think they have, uh, you know, some drawbacks as compared to pathway two. For instance, you know, the commonality of interest has to be very tightly limited around a profession. Also, uh, they don't allow uh, working owners to participate, and that's a big deal. And if, if you don't mind, I'm going to go on a, a little bit of uh, digression about what a working owner is. Working owners are basically people that you know work 20 hours a week or 80 hours a month as a sole proprietor or self-employed in, uh, individual. You know, this could even be someone working as a side hustle, doing like a rideshare service, like you know Uber or Lyft. This is a very big portion of the American populace. And they're also the people in the individual health insurance market, which is the most expensive uh, health insurance market typically in, in America. So they're, you know, some of the, pe the people who are uh, hurt as they're waiting for, you know, the pathway to, to be upheld under appeal. Well, I, I think there's, there's tons more to talk about and we hope that you'll come back and join us. I, I recommend the book to everybody who's interested in this. It's a, it's a great, considering that it's how technical it needs to be, it's a great read and it's accessible to almost everyone. Kev Coleman, president and founder of associationhealthplans.com. Kev, thank you for being a shift shaper and for sharing your expertise with our audience today. Thank you so much, David, for having me. And I look forward to talking to you again. 
The Shift Shapers podcast is a production of Shift Shapers Strategies and may not be reproduced or quoted in whole or in part without our express written permission. Copyright 2019. All rights reserved. Thank you.